Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rockman Review. I'm Rana Faruhar, the global business columnist for the Financial Times, and I'm sitting in for my colleague, Gideon Rockman. When coronavirus evolved from a health crisis into a full-blown economic crisis, governments had two options. They could help workers and companies make it through or let them flounder. Many countries, most notably Germany, prioritized labor first, using furlough schemes to retain workers and prevent job losses. But the United States went down a different road. So here to talk about how and why that is and what it means for both the U.S. and the global economy, I have economist Bill Spriggs on the line. Bill is a professor of economics at Howard, a historically black university in Washington, D.C. He's also the chief economist of the AFL-CIO, the largest federation of unions in the U.S. And that puts him right at the center of the conversation about both economic and racial justice that's happening now, as Americans grapple with the changes wrought by COVID-19 and what comes next. To get the pandemic under control, countries had to lock down movement and essentially shut down some parts of the economy. The path that the United States took to manage the economic fallout was to use fiscal stimulus to encourage businesses to hold on to workers and expand unemployment benefits to those who lost jobs. American workers can retain their jobs, receive their paychecks, and help our economy take off quickly once America reopens for business, which is happening right now as we sit. That was President Trump at the end of April. You folks are ready. But the pandemic is not under control. And now lockdowns are being reintroduced in states that opened up too early. And those expanded jobless benefits that have been such a lifeline to millions of Americans, those are set to expire at the end of the week. Here's Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi summing up Democrats' position on the issue. What do the Republicans and the White House have against working families in our country, that they would begrudge them $600 of, well, absolutely necessary sustenance. But the markets would tell a different story, one that feels very divorced from the reality that so many Americans are facing, as retailers like Amazon and Walmart have increased their value to shareholders, and markets seem completely unfazed and unmoored by the challenges in the real economy. So as Congress continues to debate the details of the next fiscal stimulus plan, I started by asking Bill what should be prioritized for workers and for the economy at large. For the economy at large, the most important thing is maintaining consumption at the bottom of the income distribution. The upper end of the distribution, for the most part, are workers who are able to stay at home. These are the folks who have discretionary income and dominate auto sales, home sales, the big ticket items that drive economic activity. And their drop in consumption is creating the regular recession that we have right now. On top of 
the disruption to economic activity because of safe distancing. So there's little we can do about that part until we control the virus and restore for upper income people a sense of normalcy and safety. So the part that we can control is the disruption to those workers in the sectors that are most affected by our need to safe distance. And unlike the rest of the industrialized world that put tons of money into directly subsidizing wages of workers so they would stay in place with their firm, we, the United States, chose to go a totally different route and to dump people into our unemployment insurance system. The reason other countries chose the path of subsidizing wages directly is you reduce friction in the labor market coming out of this because the workers and the firms remain attached. And so coming out of this, you don't have to figure out how do I get them back together? And you avoid scarring from this. So we've let Amazon and Walmart get super fat. We've let other people get super lean. Those restaurants that have a service that pickup and delivery is normal for people do really well. But if I had a sit-down restaurant, this is a challenge. So we created a lot of potential scarring. That means if I'm a sit-down restaurant and I go to the pickup model, a maitre d', what do I do with the maitre d'? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this wait staff, why do I need them? I need the people in the kitchen but I don't need those other people. So now I let them go. And then where do they get picked up? The end result is I'm going to have these frictions of putting them back together. So if you view what those countries did, it's like a handshake with their workers. Here's the deal. So I used to be a foreign correspondent in Europe and I I spent some time in Germany studying the model there that you're talking about that's so common in the middle stunt with the big export firms there where there is this kind of sharing both of wealth but also of the pain in a downturn between labor, uh, the corporate sector, and the public sector. And I remember talking at one point to a CEO and asking him, to, uh, trying to get at why the pay differential was so much smaller between CEOs and and the lowest paid worker in Germany in those types of companies versus the Anglo-American world. And he said, well, you know, I couldn't walk into a local restaurant and hold my head up here if I was making 300 times what my lowest paid worker did. So why are labor relations in the U.S.? Why is it so much more contentious than other places? Well, some of it is corporate structure and that influences corporate culture. Uh, For the longest in Germany, the corporate boards had to include labor members, and therefore it changes the dialogue within the corporate meeting because Mm. the interest of workers on the board has to do with, we want to keep the factory here and we want jobs in the long run. Therefore, we want money to go into productive activities because that's how we workers make our money. 
versus in the U.S. where you have financial interest sitting at the table. And the way I make money is my stock price goes up, which has nothing to do with capital investment. Marginally, it does, but only marginally. And the capital investment, if we do make it, can be anywhere. So let me ask you, you've mentioned a couple of things, shareholder versus stakeholder. I mean, even before the pandemic, even before Trump, you know, that that was that was a conversation that was brewing. Are we now at a tipping point with that conversation? Do you think that we are actually going to move, particularly, let's say, if we get a new administration in November and and even more if we see a Democratic sweep? Are we going to move to being a stakeholder economy? And if so, what would that look like? I would hope we would. I believe coming out of this, the European model, the rest of the world model of retaining the workers is giving them an advantage in fighting the virus. And because they're not going to go through the labor frictions of trying to reassemble their workforces, give them a head start. Mm. and. In the period of the Great Recession, we way overcorrected in our auto sector, and then it quickly rebounded and righted itself, and we looked like we were the most dynamic thing ever, and a lot of people thought, maybe the Americans got it right, throw everybody out of work, and then let the companies gather enough cash and then quickly bring people back. But this time, there are so many complications that I don't think we make it back in the same way. Let me ask you about yet another complication in this pandemic, which is that um, the nature of the crisis is, of course, shifting us very quickly from a world of tangibles to intangibles, uh, software, all things virtual, all things digital. Now, some of the automation that we're seeing I know is, is good for workers in terms of safety, but I'm worried personally that we're going to see companies using this opportunity to do a lot of tech displacement, basically, of labor. Are you worried about that, too? No, because honestly, I haven't seen that. I mean, what I have seen is tech displacement of other ways of doing business. So our reliance on Amazon and online shopping have gone up. So those people doing logistics. But I don't see things actually automated. And when we look at the data, business investment is at almost zero. The data part that I fear is that the Amazons of the world, because they control so much data, Mm. that was always important. But now this is preeminent and important because it is the only way to reach your customers. What I fear is we've allowed this scarring to take place that will make it impossible for retail sales to bounce back because the competitors for Amazon simply do not have that intangible, that huge database. And I don't see how they overcome that gap. So that's fascinating. That is actually touching on two other major issues, monopoly power and data, personal data. Data is the oil of the new economy. How should we be thinking about this? How can we make sure that the new digital economy doesn't become a zero-sum game in which four or five companies basically own the most important input on the planet? I think we have to have a sit-down, serious conversation globally. 
coming out of this because of what the U.S. has done, Amazon is going to be far more powerful. And even though they did things differently in Europe, the fact that we have fattened Amazon is going to make them even more potent in Europe coming out of this. And Europe resents this greatly. They look on it as an American corporation that doesn't pay taxes and they want their fair share of taxes. I think the pressure is going to mount because the source of revenue for all of this debt that those European countries have run up is going to heighten and they're going to look at Amazon and Google and they're going to say, y'all got to pay. It was already an issue. France had already put this on the table because they were acting on their own. And there are going to be repeated attempts to come up with a way to tax these corporations. And at that point, I think we all need to pause. We agree to let them do what they do without fully appreciating the transformative nature of them having monopoly on data. We have let them, in essence, farm what is a common good. Huh. That's an interesting point. I wanted to talk to you just for a minute, actually, about how the U.S. works with changing demographics. We're a ways away from being a majority-minority country, but we're actually already majority-minority as a nation in terms of new workers. So I'm curious how you think this is going to affect politics going forward. Well, I think it's affecting politics now because the Black Lives Matter movement has a lot more traction And in part, it's because the voices at the table are different. And this current downturn affects younger workers more than older workers. The restaurant industry came of age as we were making this demographic shift. And understand the transition we went through. At the beginning of this century, we had 15 million manufacturing workers and we had 9 million restaurant workers. And now we're equal. The restaurant industry is far more important than we appreciate. It's not just that there were 12.6 million workers, the size of our manufacturing workforce. It's the same amount. We shifted people out of manufacturing and into these restaurants. The difference is they are overwhelmingly people who are made up of of, of a mixture of, of America's as opposed to manufacturing, which was more old line and had become sort of calcified because the level of automation that had been taking place in American industry was absorbed by not hiring new workers. And we we let the manufacturing workforce age. So these are younger workers, they're more diverse, but they are low wage. But what they do is vital. When you think of most cities today, they have turn themselves around, their downtowns are vital now, and it's because of the restaurant industry. No one goes downtown to go to department stores. The restaurant industry revitalized the downtowns. People go to downtown D.C. They flock to the downtowns of many cities that have figured this out because they're going there to eat. And when they go there to eat, they create the foot traffic for the small retailers who can thrive as small retailers. 
I'm so glad that you sketched this interconnection between these small businesses because, you know, I hear a lot of voices that say, well, we should go through some, use this moment to go through some kind of, you know, Schumpeterian, um, you know, creative destruction, let all these, you know, businesses that aren't high tech fail and we'll just shift everybody to being software engineer. And that feels so much to me like the whole neoliberal, everybody should work in finance, got us into some of the problems that we've had over the last um, few decades. So we've talked a lot about what's timely, what's of the moment, but there's really a bigger picture question here, and that's how to create a sustainable economy for years to come. Um, and that, Bill, reminds me of something that you alluded to previously in the conversation, which is the savings glut amongst the rich, uh, which is why we have, in part, why we have the kind of um, negative interest rate bond market that we do. That is a very deep, convoluted system that has taken 40 years to build. How do we start deconstructing that into something more sustainable? We're going to have to make massive changes to raise the wages from the bottom and use that to put pressure in the middle. And it has to happen because when the economy was a middle-class economy, which it was through the end of the 1980s, it was like a roly-poly toy, that little toy that you get when you're a baby. And, you know, it's a little clown face and it's really heavy on the bottom and the child hits it and it falls down, but then it bounces right back up because the center of gravity is so low, it, it writes itself immediately. The U.S. now, because the economy has half the income in the top 10%, is like the spinning top you got when you got older. And it was hard because... You had to throw it correctly with the string so that it would land on its tip and spin really fast because the center of gravity at the bottom was that little tiny tip. And if it wasn't spinning fast enough, it fell over. We now have an economy that requires full employment all the time because the people at the bottom simply don't have enough money. And when people are shocked, why are we having to add $600 to unemployment checks? And why are we doing that? Because people at the bottom have absolutely no money. And the problem becomes for a lot of industries, the consumption is per capita. So if 30% of people can't buy groceries, the grocery store industry is in big trouble. Now, when the money is at the top the way it is, however, it does create problems because it creates rent and rent spending. So home prices, because the top 10% consume over half the value of new residential homes, they tilt the market. If I'm building a home, it's for the top 10%. That is why the price of homes are not affordable. Because the rest of the people don't have enough money to drive that market. You're getting at the idea that all the things that make us middle class, education, healthcare, uh, homes, that they're in this bubble this, that's disconnected from what most people can, can afford. Final quick question. Joe Biden recently announced a green economic stimulus plan, not an emergency plan, but kind of a longer term plan of how to shift the economy into this sort of productive clean tech, green tech he got unions on board with this, which is interesting because I think one of the um, I've always liked the idea of a Green New Deal. But I think one of the problems that some of the younger progressives made in putting this forward is they did not get unions on board. Are you now um, 
Are, how, are, how are you feeling about that? Do you think that this is the way forward to create the next big leap in American growth? I think it is a way, and it's an important way because we have to solve the problem of greenhouse gases. Centering it on the inclusion of workers' voices from the beginning is absolutely necessary because just as we see with COVID, if you don't give people reassurance of what's the path forward, you don't get their cooperation. And because it's something like fighting the virus that we have to do, it's necessary to do that. And leaving that simply to market forces, which unfortunately, as you mentioned, that's what was happening before you had young people saying, well, you know, this is going to be good for the economy. And they then turn neoliberal on us and then, you know, and the market forces will drive this. It's like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You actually have to plan these things. And I think the tragic part of the United States that is highlighted by this virus is our one true religion is the house of the invisible hand. Mm. And we are so over-orthodox on that, that it creates an inability for us to be flexible in environments where the market is simply not the right answer. Mm. And this belief that the invisible hand is beneficent is central to that religion. And I'm thinking that maybe this shock, <laughs> maybe, will get people out of that religion. I hope so. And I hope it also makes them remember other things that Adam Smith came up with, aside from the invisible hand, like the idea that in order for markets to work, we need a shared moral framework. So hopefully we're getting there. Um, Bill Spriggs, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. That was Bill Spriggs ending this edition of the Rockman Review. Gideon Rockman is back again next week when I hope you'll join us for another edition of the Rockman Review. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.